Let me begin by asking a rather simple question: Would it be okay if I took off my shoes? Okay. Because more and more, I find the spirit of God simply saying, "You be you, and you be mine." And when I am most fully myself and most fully His, I am in the best possible place. And this morning, what I wanted to do was share just a little bit of my own spiritual journey, as well as a question that I have wrestled with for a number of years. As some of you know, I come from a little bit of an unusual background, in that I was raised by a Jewish father who came to recognize Yeshua as the Messiah and a Gentile mother. So I was raised in a Christian home with hues of Judaism, and at the end of the day, I make a pretty great bowl of matzah ball soup. While growing up, I attended public school, private school, Christian school, and I was homeschooled. And I still think that I'm recovering. I just don't know from which one. <laughs> When I graduated from high school in Colorado, I was one of those really ambitious ones. And more than anything, I wanted to go to a private, prestigious university in Washington D.C. and study international relations and pre-law. And it was a fabulous plan for my life, except for one little problem: I didn't get in. And instead, I ended up in a small liberal arts school in the mountains of North Carolina, where during my freshman year, I began engaging in an activity better known as partying like a rock star. <laughs> And while I managed to get the A's on my transcript, I got the B's in life, namely the boys, the beer, and the Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> But I had a praying mama. And as some of us know, praying mamas are some of the most powerful people in the universe. And at the end of that freshman year, I remember my youth pastor called, and he said, "Margaret, there is a Christian conference that I really think that you need to go to." And so I did. And while I was there, it was like God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, and He said, "You are my child, and I have called you by name. Come back to me." And so I began turning my life around. I began studying this book. In fact, I spent so much time in this book that I actually became a religion major, focusing on New Testament studies. We'll flash forward four years, and I am now a religion major at a small liberal arts school in the mountains of North Carolina. And people are looking at me and saying, "What are you going to do with that?" And for any of you who are sociology, communication, political science majors, we have. Have no idea. <laughs> I remember my senior year, literally walking down the halls of my school and looking at the posters for opportunities, and looking at them all and thinking they all look great. I actually began throwing out applications in all directions. I would see a poster to study at Hebrew University in Israel, and I was like, "Sounds great," or, or go on an archaeological dig in Egypt. Sure, why not? And as I'm throwing out all of these applications, the one that sticks is to intern at a small Christian magazine in Lake Mary, Florida. So I pack up my old 1987 Subaru station wagon, drive down to Lake Mary, Florida, and I spend the summer. And during that summer, working for that magazine, I learned two rather important things about myself. Number one, that I loved writing, and number two, that I was not built for a cubicle. Chalk it up to one. One too many powder mornings of living in a ski resort in Colorado. Well, at the end of that summer, I remember there weren't really any job opportunities. And at that point, my mom called and she said, "Margaret, your dad and I are going on a mission trip to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Would you like to go?" And I remember thinking, "Well, I don't know." And then she said the magic words, "We'll pay." 
and I was so there. So I went down to Honduras for a week, and it was amazing. And as I'm there, I, I thought, you know what? Maybe this is what God has for me. Because I don't know about you guys, but growing up in the church in America, it's often when the missionaries come back on furlough from being overseas that they tell these incredible stories of all that God is doing around the world. And so I honestly thought, well, if they love Jesus, and this is how they serve Jesus, and I love Jesus, then maybe this is how I should serve Jesus too. And so I ended up spending about 90 days in Honduras. And I can honestly tell you, they were some of the worst days of my life. Shortly after I got there, I got a little bug known as amoeba. And for any of you who have ever gone to Mexico and had your vacation turn mallow, let's just say you don't get a whole lot of ministry done when you are hanging out with John. <laughs> Caught that one. If that wasn't hard enough, I also discovered that mi espanol es terrible. <laughs> and if that wasn't challenging enough, I remember at one point I went to go visit some missionaries in a far part of the country, and I'm sitting in the back of a bus and I've got all of my stuff. When a guy comes up to me and he has a knife blade about this long, he holds it up to my neck and he says to me in Spanish, give me all of your stuff. And the worst part was, I understood him. And I remember sitting there with all of my bags and with all of my things, and I had this half-empty water bottle, and I'm literally sitting there going, no, no, you cannot have my stuff, when the words of my father flashed through my mind. And he says, if you're ever getting robbed, give them what they want, because it's never worth it. And so I'm like, no, no, okay, here you go. <laughs> And now I am stuck in Honduras. I have $87, a passport, and a very upset stomach. And I'm thinking, well, am I supposed to be here? Is this what I'm supposed to do? And so I went and spent some time with some longtime missionaries in Honduras, and I told them my stories, and I looked at them, and I said, is this normal? And they looked at me, and they said, no, go home. <laughs> And so about 10 months after college graduation, I ended up doing what so many of us do when we have no idea what we want to do with our lives, and I moved back in with mom and dad. And while I am living with my parents, and I am praying, and I'm crying out to God and saying, Lord, just tell me what to do. I want to love you. I want to serve you. Just tell me what to do. And I don't hear a peep, not a smoke signal, nada. And that is when I turned the question around. And I began asking myself, if I could do anything with my life, and if time and money were not factors, in other words, if all jobs on the planet all paid $8 an hour, what would I want to do? And as I thought and as I prayed, I only had one answer. I wanted to write. In fact, I wanted to write more than I wanted to eat, which is a good thing because most writers end up growing up to be starving artists. <laughs> and so I took those clips from that summer internship, and I wrote a half a dozen Christian magazines, and I literally said, hi, my name is Margaret Feinberg, and you have never heard of me. But could I write the reviews in the back of your magazine? Because I knew that if I could win an editor's trust with that smallest publishable piece, that I could work my way up. And so I did, from reviews to news stories to feature stories to cover stories. And eventually in 2001, Relevant Books published my first book called God Whispers. 
Now, I need to let you know that that is kind of the four-color, fast-forward brochure portrait of my journey. You see, the reality is there were a whole lot of years in there of just struggling, working multiple jobs, being a nanny, a caterer, a maid, doing whatever it took in order to make ends meet. But I think that sometimes the passions that God gives us are not things that we run toward as much as they are things that we cannot run away from. And so for the last dozen years or so, I've had the privilege of sharing the story, not only of what God has been doing in my life, but what he's been doing in our generation and communities everywhere. Well, when I look back over my own journey, one of the things that I notice is that throughout my life, especially as a kid, we tended to move around a lot. And so even though I was born in Florida and grew up in North Carolina and primarily spent my formative years in Colorado, wherever we lived, we attended a different church or denomination. And I quickly discovered as a kid that when you attend different churches and you ask a spiritual question, you can get wildly different spiritual answers. And one of the questions that I always wrestled with was how do you hear from God? Does anybody else ever kind of wonder that? Like, how do you recognize God's voice from, say, a bad hamburger last night? Like, how do you recognize what is really him? Well, what I discovered as I asked these questions in these different churches is that based on the spectrum of denomination, I would get completely different answers. So maybe if I was way over here and I was able to catch up with the woman running down the middle of the aisle with a prayer flag, and I was able to tap her on the shoulder and ask her, how do you hear from God? She would look at me with this glowing smile and say, I hear from God all day, every day. And I would think, that's awesome, but you scare me a little. (laughs) Or maybe I'd be in a more moderate denomination, and and I'd find somebody who'd been walking with Jesus for 20 or 30 years, and I'd say, sir, how do you hear from God? And he would say, well, you know, because you get a check in your spirit. And I'm thinking, I'm half Jewish. Do I get a deposit slip with that? (laughs) Or I'd find that person, and I'd ask them, how do you hear from God? And he would look at me and he'd say, well, you know, because you know. And I'm thinking, I don't know, which is why I'm asking you. (laughs) Or or maybe in that spectrum, I'd be in a really conservative church and I'd just say, how do you hear from God? And they would cross their arms and tilt their head and say, you're one of those. And I'm thinking, one of what? I just want to have a vibrant relationship with God. And this hunger to know God and to know his word drove me to one book, and that was this one. And what I began to discover is that God's voice literally reverberates throughout these pages. From the very beginning in Genesis, we discover that with but mere words, God speaks creation into existence. We see that God, with but words, he paints the sky, he pulls up the mountain, he unleashes the ocean, and he drops the the rain. In the beginning of Genesis, we watch God and get a glimpse of what it was like for him to communicate with mankind without any static. There was no skip in the CD, no issue with a download. And yet even after a willful act of disobedience, God does not go silent on his people. It's God who warns Cain. God who 
instructs Noah and God who calls Abraham. Throughout the Old Testament, we find time and time again, God speaking to poets and prophets and princes and everyday people. In Isaiah chapter 30, it's Isaiah who explains that sometimes in all of our lives, there will be times when the paths will head in different directions, and yet it is the Spirit of God who says, this is the way, walk in it. God's voice not only echoes through the Old Testament, but into the new. I think one of the most colorful and poignant moments of God's voice is found in Matthew chapter 17, a place in the scripture where it's like time is peeled back and the Old Testament kisses the new. And on that rocky mountainside, we find that there is James and John and Peter and Moses and Elijah and Jesus gathered. And before them, Jesus is transformed. And there is this cloud overhead and a voice echoes down and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased Listen to him. All the way to the closing of Revelation where we receive the promise, yes, I am coming soon. We discover that God's voice in our life is not so much an option as much as it is an invitation to a vibrant relationship with him. And so when I had the opportunity to write my very first book, this was the topic that I tackled. And it was called God Whispers, Learning to Hear His Voice, an effort to understand God's voice without the kooky, the spooky, or the crazy pants. And I based it on a passage found in 1 Kings chapter 19. And for those of you who have your Bibles, I would love for you to go to 1 Kings 19. And for those of you who have your iPhones, you can go there as well, as long as the text is off, because as we all know, there is an app for that. And as you're going to 1 Kings 19, let me give you a little background on the history of God's people. Because back in the day, God's people were ruled by God. And they woke up one day and they said, you know what, we want to be like all of the other nations. We want to have political leadership. And so God gave the Israelites what they asked for in the very first king, Saul, whose name interestingly means asked for. And if you read Saul's story, you know that it's not very long until the crown goes to his head and he goes a little kooky pants on God's people. And yet God does not leave his people there. And he raises up a second leader by the name of David, whose name means beloved. And he is described as a man having a heart after God. And yet even though he was passionately pursuing God, he still got taken out by a little hottie by the name of Bathsheba. And if you read the entirety of David's story, you'll also find that he was the kind of dad who put the fun in dysfunctional family. And yet God again raises up another leader named Solomon, the third king of Israel. And Solomon's name is equivalent to shalom, and it can be translated as peace. And Solomon ruled during a time of peace, and he leveraged that peace in order to build the temple of God. Now Solomon was unique in the sense that he was given an opportunity by God to ask for anything that he wanted. And he thought, he said, you know, if I could have anything, I want wisdom. And the scripture tells us that Solomon was given so much wisdom that no man who ever came before him or after him ever had as much wisdom on the earth as Solomon did. And yet, despite all of that wisdom, he still got taken out by the girls, the gold, and the glory. He still got taken out by the women and the money and the power. And what we read in the history of Israel is it's like once they 
set in place a political leader, that ball just kind of began rolling downhill until we catch up with them in 1 Kings 18 and 19. And a really wicked guy by the name of King Ahab is ruling over Israel. And he has a wife by the name of Jezebel. And the way that you know that somebody is dirty dog bad in the Bible is that nobody today names their children after them. <laughs> Which is why you won't see a whole lot of Jezzies running around in the preschool. And in the midst of this, God raises up a man by the name of Elijah, and he gives him mission impossible. And he says, it is your job to speak out against the wicked leaders of the day. And so in 1 Kings chapter 18, it comes down to a fiery showdown on top of Mount Carmel that I like to call one of the iron stuff moments of the Bible. Because on top of Mount Carmel, which is like food, there are two barbecues, and you have Elijah in front of one barbecue, and you have the false prophets in front of another barbecue, and they are all trying to acquire the secret ingredient, which is fire. And the false prophets are in front of their barbecue, and they beg on their false gods to send down fire, and there is not even a spark. But Elijah stands in front of his barbecue. It's almost like he pulls out some scissors, and he cuts the cord to the propane tank, and then he dumps on a tub of water. And then all he does is he calls on the name of our God, and fire descends, and it consumes his barbecue, the false prophet's barbecue, and all of the false prophets, and Elijah is the iron chef. And he is super excited until he looks over and he sees King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and he goes, ruh gotta go. And he heads out of town. And we catch up with him in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. And it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And in but a moment of time, we watch one of God's faithful leaders go from the very heights of ministry and life to one of the darkest depths. And yet God meets him there. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Now, I find it intriguing that all of all of the food that the angel could have shown up with on that day, he did not come with Tim Hortons. No Subway, no Sam Woo barbecue which I saw on the street last night, and I was like, ooh, that looks really good. No, the angel didn't come with any of these to-go dishes. He shows up with some basic bread and water, which is kind of intriguing because Elijah is considered an archetype of John the Baptist, a man who was a forerunner of Jesus Christ, a man who described himself both as the living water and the bread of life. And so right here in 1 Kings 19, we have foreshadows and hints of the one who is yet to come. When we keep reading in verse 7, it says, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and he lodged there. 
And I'm always interested by that because I don't know about you guys, but when I find myself in the depths of pain and loss and despair, I too will find a cave. No, it, it won't be the rocky one on the side of a mountain, but I will go into my bed, I will pull the sheets over my head, and I will beg to God to make it all go away. And yet again, God meets him there. And the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah just lets it rip with God. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So here is Elijah. He offers a laundry list of concerns to God. And God responds and does not answer a single one. Instead, God says this, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, or what some translations describe as a gentle whisper or what one translator describes as a thin silence. And I love that description the best because it incorporates the very mystery which is the voice of God. And it came about that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and asked him a very familiar question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives God the exact same answer as if God hadn't heard it the first time. And then and only then does God answer Elijah differently. And he says, no, Elijah, you are not alone. There are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal. And you, you are not alone because I'm going to use you to appoint a new king over Israel. And you, you are not alone because I am going to give you a partner in crime, a.k.a. a wingman, by the name of Elisha. And in but a moment in time, we watch God reach out and meet Elijah's needs physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, on every level reminding us that when we too are at the end of our ropes and we are ready to let go, that God can meet us there. But when I read this passage, the idea that caught my attention was the one where it says that God drew near in the sound of a gentle whisper. And I thought, you know what? If that's the way that God speaks, then that's the way that I want to hear him. I want my spirit sensitive to those little gentle nudgings of God. And so when I had the chance to write that first book, I based it on this passage. But that was like 10 years ago. You see, and over those 10 years, I've continued growing in my relationship with God. I've continued coming back and reading the scripture, and particularly this passage. And as I have, I've begun to see things a little bit differently. Because I don't know about you guys, but I believe that the scripture is a lot like a diamond. Like we can look at it and we can say it is so beautiful and then suddenly it'll shift ever so subtly and the light will hit it from a new angle and we'll get that ooh-ah all over again. And for me, that's what's happened in this passage. 
Because while it clearly says that God was not in the fire or the wind or the earthquake, then it raises the question, who was? Did you ever think about that? Who was? You see, I have a hunch that while the scripture says God was not in the fire or the wind or the earthquake, that none of those things happened apart from God's permission or apart from his power. And just as God used the repetitive nature of those circumstances in order to get Elijah's attention and to bring him to a place where he could once again bring Elijah's heart back to God's own, how often God will use the repetitive nature of life and of circumstances in order to get our attention and to bring us back to a place where our hearts can be drawn back to God's own. And I call those moments sacred echoes. What is a sacred echo? It's the repetitive nature of God's voice in our life. It's the moment when you're spending time reading the scripture or devotional and you have that one phrase or that one word or that one story. It's like it pops off the page and it comes alive in your heart and your mind. And you try to close the book and walk away, but you can't. It's almost like it haunts you. It follows you throughout the day until you go to church on maybe Saturday night or Sunday morning or Sunday night and you're there and boom and there is the teacher teaching on that exact same passage and then later on in the week you go out to lunch with some friends at Sam Wu barbecue and you're hanging out and talking about life when bam the topic comes up again. And then finally, at the end of the week, when you can't stand it anymore, you go to your Christian calendar, the one that your very well-meaning Christian grandmother sent you, the one with the Thomas Kincaid artwork, and you see that under the lampstand is the passage again. And when you see it, you think, maybe, just maybe, God is at work. And what I've been discovering in my own life is that while I want to be sensitive to the whispers of God, that when I listen for the sacred echoes, that I walk more fully and more confidently into everything that God has for me. And so this morning, I just wanted to share just one of the sacred echoes that God has spoken to me. The book, The Sacred Echo, takes a look at 10 different things that God has said time and time again to me. But this one has been one of the most simple and yet also one of the most shaping. You see, for a year of my life, I spent some time at a Bible college down in Florida. And while I was there in a stu- as a student, all I can describe is in the kind of environment that it was, it seemed a little bit like souped up, spiritual, hyped a little bit. Have you anybody ever been in an environment like that? And so I, would, I was there and I would talk to the other students and I would say, you know, so what are your plans? What are you studying? And it seemed like everybody I ta- talked to had like this super-sized calling from God. Like it wasn't just that I'm going to be part of like a worship ministry or I kind of want to help lead worship. It was like I am going to have this international worship ministry that is going to reach around the globe into every country. And I'm like, wow. Or it wasn't somebody that just wanted to like work in a church. No, they were called to be the senior pastor of a mega church in Dallas. Do you know, like just huge, huge dreams and visions from God. And then they would turn the question around. They would ask me, like, like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I have no idea. I, I still don't. Do you have a poster on the wall I could look at? Do you know, like, seriously. 
I have no clue. Like secretly what I really wanted to do was be the taster at Godiva chocolate. <laughs> I think I hear God telling me that, <laughs> echoing this truth. And so as I'm in the super spiritual hyped up environment, I'm sitting there and, and I'm constantly hearing from these people who have these great callings. And I started to just like wonder like, God, like, Seriously, like, what about me? Like, if you talk to all these other people like that, like, like, how come you don't tell me anything? Like, like, do you have a purpose for me? Like, like, what, what's the plan? And it wasn't too long till I started to ask some rather unhealthy questions. Like, what's wrong with me? Has God forgotten me? What's going on here? And as I'm praying and I'm wrestling this through, I remember reading a passage in the Bible which I felt like God used to both whisper and echo to me, and it's found in John chapter 21. And I think it's one of the sweetest scriptures in the Bible. And in John chapter 21, this is like the disciples hanging out with Jesus at Tim Hortons. They have been out fishing overnight. They've kind of like wondered, where has Jesus gone? Jesus appears to them on the beach, and he calls out, and John's like, hey, it's Jesus. And Peter throws on his cloak, and he starts swimming to shore, and he's doing the butterfly or whatever it is. He's got his Michael Phelps on, and he's finally getting close to the shore, and he gets his feet on the ground, and he comes up, and he looks, and and on the shore there are some grilled fish and some fresh-made bread. And Jesus is just hanging out saying, come, spend time. And so they sit there and they just have breakfast together. And at a certain point in the conversation, Jesus zeroes in on Peter and he just says, you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And in the process, he's reinstating Peter, who the last time he had seen him in the Gospel of John, he had denied him three times. And Peter's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then Jesus like zeroes in even more and he goes totally prophetic on Peter. And in John chapter 21, verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now you can imagine Peter being like, ah, can I get the rollover minutes from the good life? Like, like this is not the prophetic word that I was hoping for, that this, this is not where I want to go. And Peter, like, looking for a way out, I can imagine him almost turning around, and he looks at John, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And I can almost imagine Jesus, like, grabbing Peter's chin, turning his face back around, looking at him dead in the eyes, and saying, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And when I read this passage on that day, it was like God was saying, if I want all these people to do all these amazing, great things, what is that to you? You follow me. You press your nose so close into my shoulder blades that I am the only thing that you see. Follow me, Margaret. I remember closing my Bible that morning and saying, God, I get it. My calling is to follow you. No, it doesn't come with a business card, but that's okay. 
But a few weeks passed, and it wasn't too long until I began to question and doubt. I'm still hearing all this noise in the environment that I'm in, and I'm starting to question, and God, God, but, but I know I'm supposed to follow you, but could I just get like some sort of direction, you know, supersize it, just maybe half size or whatever that might look like? And I'm crying out to God again and saying, Lord, what, what am I supposed to do? And I remember one evening, some friends and I went to a local track because we couldn't afford a gym membership. And we headed to the local high school track, and we just decided to start working out. We all were going to go running, and so we get out of the car, and the first guy who I'm with just heads to the track, and he is like Speedy Gonzalez doing the rounds. And the second guy says, Margaret, I'll run with you, because he was trying to be really loving and kind. And what he doesn't know is that I'm like an uber-slow runner. And so after about a half a lap, he looks at me and he goes, Margaret, i got to be honest with you. Your pace is painfully slow, and i got to go. And so I'm sitting there running, and I'm looking, and I'm getting lapped by these two guys. And meanwhile, over in the corner, there's this other guy, and he's got like his jiu-jitsu running weirdness on, just like doing his own like weird spatial moves over here. And I'm watching as I'm getting lapped by people of various pieces, and we got the weirdo guy over here. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just running and jogging, and I'm crying out to God and saying, God, what do you have for me? What is this thing? Lord, why do you speak to everybody else and not me? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, look up. And I looked up after some time. And I noticed that the two guys who had been lapping me, they were gone. One of them was crashed out on one of the benches. Another one was already waiting back at the car. Mr. Jiu-Jitsu over here, he was gone. And I was the only one who was still in my little lane, just jogging along. And in the end of that night, I ended up running further than probably any of them did, even at my slow pace. And in that moment, it was like the Spirit reminded me, you follow me. You stay true to the lane that I have placed you in because I can do great things through those who are slow and steady. Follow me, Margaret. Don't get distracted by those who lap you or doing their own thing over here. Press your nose into my shoulder blades and seek me. Time and time again, I am reminded of the importance of you follow me. Ultimately, that is the ultimate calling, that we would seek him, pursue him, press into him, and know him. So my hope and my prayer for you is that you would begin recognizing God's voice in your life, not just as a whisper, but as an echo. And in the repetitive nature of his voice, you will begin discovering just how much he loves you and how much he invites you to follow him no matter what may come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who desires relationship with us, that you are a God who seeks us, that speaks us, who is alive and living. Father, draw our hearts back to yours. Father, may we answer the call to follow you no matter what may come, no matter what profession, no matter what area of service, no matter what status of marriage, no matter what that may look like. Father, may we choose to be the people who call on your name and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.